0: to your trail camera and everything in between if you have a piece of hunting gear or a piece of hunting equipment that needs a battery interstate batteries has got you covered you can go to a local retail store or you can go visit online at interstatebatteries.com they have thousands of local retail shops all over the u.s so you can go there as well interstate batteries outrageously dependable
1: Welcome to the DIY Sportsman Podcast with your hosts, Garrett Prawl and Boudreaux Boswell. So you just had that one, it was a mule deer hunt that you went on, right? Yep. Up in that Wasatch area?
2: Yeah, this was, uh, it's west of the Wasatch. This is the Ochre-Stansbury unit is
1: the tag that I drew for. Okay. Well, you were up there for what? Close to a week?
2: Uh, yeah it ended up being a little bit short of a week and my plan was to go up on like Friday, but my girlfriend's truck ended up actually breaking down on Friday so I had to fix that and then went up on Monday
1: okay so you're a couple days shy of what you originally planned on yeah how did the uh, observation go or I'm, I'm assuming it was just kind of glass and then spot and stock from there or what was your plan going up?
2: Yeah yeah so that was kind of the plan was just go up with the plan to um you know set up camp in an area where close to where we'd hunted last year and then you know water's so scarce up there like the closest water is probably like a mile in a mile and a half but it's like over two thousand vertical feet down just to get to water um so going up i loaded up you know i went up probably like a mile mile and a half with what water the three liters it was in my in my bladder and then when i got to the last water source i went ahead and loaded up uh, another a little over six liters of water, basically. And then the last mile and a half, two miles up just sucked because I had so much weight and water. Um, but I just knew that once I got up there, I wouldn't have much water. So knowing that, the plan was to stay close to camp and kind of just wait it out um, and try to find deer relatively close to camp because I knew as hot as it was, it was still upper 80s, that, you know, the more I walked, the more water I was going to use. And I really didn't want to have to drop back down that many vertical feet just to
1: get water again how does that play into where the deer are bedding? I mean are they bedding up high in the dry stuff and then at night when it's cool they walk down lower elevations to get to those water sources to get their own water
2: yep that's exactly what they do um, so they you know drop down low um, at night and then you know in the mornings you see them kind of come up out of the timber a little bit some of them will still bed in the timber they'll med- bed about halfway um, so it really varies depending on the deer and the group of deer specifically. But, yeah, that was kind of the plan was, you know, I had basically two to three basins that I could glass from, you know, just a little ways from camp basically. You know, coming up out of camp, I'd have to go maybe quarter to a half mile, and then I could glass these different basins just moving around to try to locate deer and hope they were bed up in a good spot um, to be able to stalk. And so I really played this year kind of a lot more patient than – what I had other years was, you know, I'd seen there was still a lot of people. I went up the second, I guess, just after the second weekend of season, and there was still a lot of people up there. Um, so that was kind of interesting, you know, we're trying to play around people and people moving around. But I really tried to play it, you know, pretty slow and pretty timid, is just glassing up
1: deer and waiting for a deer to get in in a
2: just the perfect spot to try to put a stock on them.
1: When you set up your camp to be able to glass multiple drainages, how do you position your campsite so that you're not blowing out the deer in the drainage that it has to be in?
2: It's, yeah, it's kind of, it's kind of tricky. Um, You know, a lot of it's done off of, you know, previous knowledge of the way the deer move around these basins Um, and specifically just trying to find some thick timber, kind of on a ridge uh, where, you know, scent won't be necessarily pulled down into either basin um towards the water specifically uh so it's it's really a lot of playing off of previous years knowledge of kind of the way the deer move around these different basins there was kind of a saddle up above me um a pretty good ways that the deer sometimes like to cross over so i kind of set up below that saddle basically um You know, that way I wouldn't have a big issue, especially at night with deer crossing over the saddle. You know, they do it a little bit first thing early in the morning, but a lot of times the wind is still going down, so I'm not necessarily worried about that. And then by the time the deer bedded up, when the wind shifts up, my scent would be going up over the saddle, basically.
1: So is your glassing point kind of up that direction as well? I mean, are you getting up from your camp on that ridge between two basins and just kind of working up to whatever glassing point you have to be at?
2: Yep. Yeah, so you may have to, you know, may have to move a little ways, you know, probably not even a quarter mile to hit the different basins from where I was at. Um, but you know, first thing in the morning, get up, get up the hill. And then once the deer kind of start, you know, moving around, I'll bounce from those two or three different points relatively quick to try to find as many deer on their feet as possible. And then once I find a, you know, a buck or a group of deer that I think is going to go to a spot that I may know, or maybe a good spot to stalk. Then I'll kind of stick on that group of deer, um, and kind of watch them the whole way. And then they may end up getting blown out by somebody out or get busted. And then it's just kind of going back and forth, you know, just going to one of these glassing points and just pick, to find a deer bedded up somewhere.
1: So how did that glassing go? Did you see a lot of deer or less than you're expecting or?
2: I seen a lot less than I was expecting, but with the number of people that was there, um, you know, really based off the number of people. It really wasn't, you know, as low as what I would have thought for the number of people. But typically speaking for those areas, there was a lot less deer. So it was a little bit harder to find, you know, a good deer that I was, would have stalked on. Um, I did see one real tall, narrow four by four that I would say he was probably only, oh, maybe 15 to 18 inches wide. But he was probably twice that tall. He was really tall, really narrow. I uh, really liked the looks of that deer. And so I kind of, you know, kind of had my, my sight set on him, if you will. And so it took me a couple days to, to kind of figure him out a little bit and get him to where a little bit lower into the timber. And so I just kind of keep had to moving around uh, to glass, you know, kind of what area of the timber he was going through. There was a cut lower in the timber. So one day I got farther down where I was just basically trying to see if he went through the cut even deeper into the timber or if he kind of stayed up in the higher patch of timber.
1: Is this all occurring pretty close to Timberline?
2: Yeah, right around Timberline, basically. Um, So I was camped just into the trees, you know, the last couple trees coming out of Timberline,
1: basically. And when you say there's people up there, is it more hunters or more just like recreational backpackers and things like that?
2: Where I was at, 90% of them were hunters. Um, You know, it was still relatively early in the season so there was still a fair number of people out and about most of the time when I hunted this area in like 2008 you know it was like after opening weekend there was nobody up there like you wouldn't see another person and I just over the years you know my buddy that I hunt with up there who hunts up there quite a bit was pointed it out because he messaged me and was like hey man he's like I'm still up here it was like I guess after the first weekend Thursday or Friday he's like I wouldn't even bother coming up until later in the week because there's just so many people Um, so it's just, just interesting. I don't know what's caused the change of the number of people up there. Hmm.
1: So basically apart from that one other buck, he, you really just didn't really see enough that you wanted to see to be able to, to make moves. Yeah,
2: pretty much. I, I did put a couple stocks. I put three stocks on deer, I guess. One of which was him. Um, but I don't know if he just blew out the bottom of the timber um, you know, I knew he was in the timber stand and I just tried to stalk through that timber stand to see if I could find him. I didn't even see any of the deer he was with either. So I don't know if, you know, between the time that I, they went into bed and the time I got over there and got down to them,
1: you know, maybe if they got up and moved, if somebody else blew him out from below. I'm not sure. Gotcha. Are you going back up there at some point then to try and fill that same tag?
2: Uh, so that season ended like a week ago for the archery season. Um, the tag I have allows me to go muzzleloader and firearm season. Um, based off of what I seen up there, I'm probably not going to go back up to that area. Um, this year they've opened a couple different extended archery. So they run from, uh, like September 15th through the end of November. Um, and so with that unit, I can fill it on a buck or a doe basically. And so they opened a couple Couple new areas this year, so this will be the first year they've been open. So I've kind of been doing a lot of digital scouting there, um, as well as you know, kind of trying to plan out where I'm going to go over there. One area is going to be real good for the rut. Um, they actually, it's the whole reason they kind of put this unit there was for migration reasons. They were hitting so many deer on the road, um, so they kind of put this open this unit to try to reduce the number of deer that would be going through that migration area.
1: Huh, that's interesting. Yeah, from uh from our hunt, we we definitely mixed things up a little bit this year more so than we had done in the past. You know, a lot of times what we did in the past was kind of more or less similar to what you'd been doing for your glassing and spot and stock hunting where we'd get up to one single camp point and spend a bunch of days there and guys would just kind of spread out. You know, we weren't necessarily in the back of a drainage always where we could glass a whole lot of area but we'd be on the kind of the, the side of mountains outside of the drainages that were holding all the horse camp guys and just expecting that there would be animals out on that outer rim. Um, and so usually by the end of one of those trips, one or two guys would get an opportunity just at elk, maybe that weren't bugling. Um, or, you know, we're just basically on their, their bed to feed pattern more or less. Um, and it was just more a matter of finding the right spot between those little, you know, Creek seepages and ravines and stuff like that. That you actually just got lucky enough that you picked the right spot on the mountain to sit when those animals happened to pop through, and those little, you know, 100 yard wide meadows in the timber. And so, what we did this year, because it was just me and one other guy, which is less than we typically go up with in the past, it's been either three, uh, one year we had five that we went up with. We wanted to be a little bit more strategic. Uh, and the guy that I was with, Matt, he and I did a bunch of research on the various, you know, two person calling setups. You know, we got the elk university and listened to just about every podcast from guys like, you know, Corey Jacobson or, um, Paul Medell, um, born and raised outdoors, just tried to piece together as many different strategies from as many different people that not only are really successful over the years, but also are people that are good at sharing that information and try to just kind of piece that together into a plan for ourselves. And so, one of the common themes that we kept seeing was that a lot of these guys that are really successful are very mobile. You know, they're rarely ever camping into a spot. Um, for the most part, it seemed like a lot of them were just basically hunting from the road every day. They try and they'd spend a lot of time trying to locate elk. Um, and not only locate elk, but maybe locate elk that were talkative, elk that they could make a move on, elk that they could, you know, basically call killable. And that was the plan. You know, we started off day one, kind of thinking we'd stay in that first spot for maybe two days and then we'd go to a different spot for two days and just kind of play it by ear. Well, the first full morning, we didn't see anything just sitting. So then by the time the thermal started to switch, we started going uphill to get up to the bedding cover. It was probably about a 1,500, 2,000 foot elevation gain from where we hunted the morning stuff to get to that bedding elevation up in the dark timber. And we spent the entire day up there, just location bugles, whenever we'd find like a, a wallow or something like that, we would do like a half hour calling sequence where we're just busting brush, smashing water, doing a lot of cow sounds, some bull sounds, just making a lot of racket altogether. And uh, nothing really had seemed to pan out that first day until randomly at one point we heard a bugle that sounded, it was close, but it also kind of sounded a little off, like, like the tone didn't sound quite right for an elk. So we initially assumed like it was probably a hunter that maybe heard one of our location bugles off in a distance and tried to close the distance and bugle on his own. And then it bugled again, sounded a little bit more like an elk, like, okay, well, you know, at this point, let's just, let's just do a sequence. Let's do like a breeding sequence or something like that. And just, just in case, like it's probably a hunter, but who knows? Uh, so I started working forward um, into this ravine and Matt stayed behind me and, and started basically just building up um, from cow sounds and small bull sounds to, you know, building it up into kind of a full, a full bugle uh, type of thing. And, and we didn't really have any responses to that. So we're like, you know, what the heck, like if it was a hunter, he probably realized that we were a hunter, saw Matt's blaze orange or something like that. Cause he had a muzzleloader tag and, and maybe he just walked off well, let's just go down that elevation anyway and just see what happens. Continue our loop. So a few hundred yards uh, down in, more location bugles. We heard another bugle once again, you know, further that direction, same direction we were walking. All right, well, what the heck? You know, it's either still that hunter or maybe it's a real elk just, you know, moving away. Maybe that sequence caused him, you know, maybe it was too extreme for him. Maybe he didn't, wasn't looking for a fight or whatever. Uh, so we just kept moving that direction, heard, heard it happen one other time. And we said, okay, let's just move closer and do a sequence. We're mostly cow sounds. So that's what we did. And essentially I was about 50, 60 yards up ahead of Matt. He was doing his build-up sequence, starting with hardly any bull sounds, just about all cow sounds, and then adding in raking and then, you know, adding in, you know, growling and panting and stuff like that. And this is probably occurring over maybe a 10, 15 minute time span. And it probably wasn't 30 seconds after I, got into my spot that I heard noise on the ground and could start to see cows moving through the dark timber, you know, within 60 yards. So I'm immediately like ready. I'm up, you know, in the front of a tree where I got back cover and I'm ready to go. Just got my eyes peeled, looking for anything that could happen. And the calling sequence continues. The cows move around. They start looping around and actually heading toward Matt. So they're, they're kind of walking right past me. And at this point, they're still probably 60 yards away, but they were so focused on where his sounds were coming from. I probably could have walked closer, uh, given how thick it was and it wouldn't have been an issue. And I was kind of waiting to see if there's, you know, going to be a bull back there who hadn't made any noise at this point. Um, just based on the previous bugles at this point, we're thinking, okay, maybe that was a real bull. And after I want to say 15 minutes from when we started, uh, I look over and I could see Matt just walking to walking towards me, you know, just, uh, you know, full gate, you know, Gun gun at his side, call out of his mouth. He's just coming to get me. Uh he didn't realise that there were actually elk there. He just from his perspective had been calling for fifteen minutes, didn't hear anything, all right, I'll go get Garrett. Like he's probably just waiting for me to come get him or maybe it was a hunter and he's talking to him or whatever. And right. and I'm like like waving my hand, like trying to be somewhat inconspicuous to the fact that I have <laughs> elk that I can see within sixty yards. I'm waving my hand, Matt, Matt, Matt And so I, I, I get louder and louder. He's probably he's within 30 yards of me. Closes in within 20. He's scanning around. He can't see me in my camouflage. He has no idea where I'm at. I'm waving my arm, um, and and eventually he stops, probably within 20 yards of me. Still doesn't see me at this point because he sees the elk. Finally, like he heard one of the cows, uh, one of the cows made a noise, and he looked down there thinking it was me, uh, trying to get his attention, and it was a cow. Right. So him having a cow tag with a muzzler, he, he quick, you know, gets his, his uh, shooting stick ready, starts to aim and just can never quite get a shot. And then they get away. Um, and that whole herd kind of slowly started to move down. I don't know how many elk there were actually there. It was at least three cows that I saw. Um, and assuming maybe one bull, uh, but likely not a, a herd bull or anything like that. Probably just like a small raghorn or something was our assumption. Um, but after that, that was kind of like, okay, we gotta, we gotta do something different. Like, From a communications perspective, part of the issue was I was too far away from him. So he wasn't able to have a visual of where I was at. He wasn't able to read my body language. We weren't able to sign to one another to figure out what was going on. So that was, that was an issue. And then, you know, the other issue was, you know, we said, if this happens again, it's going to be up to essentially the hunter or the stander in that position to come get the collar when the, when it's all clear. Um, so that was just a learning experience for us, you know, had, had he either sat still or had I not moved as far forward in the timber as I did, we might've gotten an opportunity, whether that bull was there, um, or whether Matt would have got a shot at one of those cows. Um, but it was day one and we just kind of tracked that up to a learning experience and really on that whole side of the mountain, there wasn't a ton of fresh sign. There was sign for sure. A lot of sign, but a lot of it was old. And, you know, with how much those elk right. can move around, especially with, you know, the the various hunter pressure and people coming in and coming out and all that kind of stuff, it's like, you know, these droppings are at least a few days old. So from that perspective, like, they they might as well be two weeks old, you know. They yeah, just might, you're behind the curve already. Yeah, they, they might not be there anymore. And obviously those elk were, and where we found those elk, there was fresh sign. Could have been left by those elk that day. Um, but that was the only thing that we saw on that side of the mountain, so we woke up the next morning. We said, okay, change of plans. Let's, let's hit this drainage. Let's hit this drainage. And, uh, basically pull our camp on that second day, moved our stuff, dropped it off with the assumption that we would just pick it up after the end of that day's hunt and get back to the truck and start driving around. So day two was basically kind of like a half camp hunt where we didn't have camp set up, but it was just kind of staged. And we went up, hunted the entire day, came back down, didn't hear an elk, didn't see an elk, not really much fresh sign, grabbed our camp stuff on the way back down the mountain in the evening, got in the truck, and then just drove to another drainage and sleep there. And then, uh, we started looking at the maps quite a bit more and driving around and, and during midday one day, and just, just covered a lot of territory, tried to see what we could hunt, what we could hunt mostly in terms of elevation, because this unit was pretty steep. And just because you could see lines on the topography or on the top of map <laughs> that look like they, you know, there's not enough resolution to really tell how steep something is. You can get an idea, uh, and the slope angle shading, actually like on Gaia GPS app, that was very helpful. Cause you could see a lot of those places had yellow or red, and then you match that up with what it actually looks like. And it's like, okay, if it's red, like there's no chance, like we're just not going to be able to climb that without, you know, rock right. chalk and, and ropes. Uh, so we found a couple drainages that looked really good on the map where there wasn't a trailhead. Most of these drainages have trailheads and trails going up through them. We found two that did not. Uh, the second one was probably two or three extra miles just to get to the bottom of the, dra- of the basin. And the first one was about a mile and a half to get to the bottom of the basin from the vehicle. We had to cross a creek to get there. And it seemed like when we started to hike up that drainage or that trail, there was a trail there, but it was not a trail head. So it was kind of, it seemed like it was more hidden, uh, but there was fresh logs, cut fresh sawdust, fresh horse poop. So it had seemed like somebody had been in there that weekend, likely clearing out the pack trail for the upcoming rifle season was our assumption. And it went right past that first drainage. So our assumption was that that first drainage probably wasn't heavily hunted. And, we found this place in at midday and we just walked up and after a few hours had finally gotten to an elevation where we said, this looks, this looks good. It's, we can see a large portion of the basin. It's got dark timber all the way back up into it, but we got, you know, a couple hundred yards of open meadow where we can see elk that could come out. So we just decided to basically do another calling sequence, uh, probably about an hour before dark thinking that these elk might be on their feet. They might be starting to move down the base and let's try and pick up one of those elk that are already on the move, see if we can call one in. And we had Timber behind us thinking that if it was a savvy bull, he might come up, you know, behind us and and try and stay more secluded. Whereas we might be able to see a a cow pop down a couple hundred yards. Um, Well, I suppose the tree line is about 100, 150 yards away from us. So if a cow popped out, it would basically be for impractical purposes within muzzleloader range for Matt. And we probably had been calling for about 15 minutes and I could hear something I'm like Matt, get ready. Like the, when you hear, it's hard to, to describe it to other whitetail hunters, what an elk sounds like, even at distance coming in. But it's, when you hear it, you know what it is. It's loud. Uh, it sounds like a horse stampeding kind of toward your direction. And about 120 yards away, out of that woodlot pops this elk and it starts he's probably 200 feet elevation below us and uh, I'm like Man, bull bow bull it you know we both get ready i mean he at that point is just kind of an observer he's just watching right cuz i have the bull tag with the bow and i i slowly move my stuff in a position when i could move cuz he was constantly looking up our direction um right for where where he had heard those sounds coming from and we we're kind of positioned in such a way that he had to get up onto our side of the the ridge a little bit to be able to see exactly and know for sure if there was cows up there or not. Uh, so it wasn't like we were completely set up in a spot where he could obviously see that there was no elk there. So he had to move. And as he you know kind of got closer, he, he worked his way up onto the lip of that hill, and at certain points he'd be facing us and kind of working straight at us, and then he would kind of veer. So I wasn't able to really quite pinpoint yet where he was going to pop out. And, uh get my bow ready and then he just takes a hard turn and starts trotting broadside to us up on that on that ridge. and uh, at, at this point like he's a trot to him is like what eight 10 miles an hour like he's moving yeah um, And so I'm like, well I pretty much have to I have to draw back now like I don't have time to you know get my rangefinder out and range it and and uh, I drew back. And not long after I drew back, he stopped and looked back, you know, up our direction and he didn't seem like he was, was too far away. Perfect broadside. I was like, all right, here, here it goes. Like now or never, I just gotta, you know, pick the, the range estimation. I think he's at and shoot. And, uh, I picked a range. I assumed he's about 45 yards away, put the 40 yard high, 50 yard low. And, uh, double checked that the, you know, kind of the V seemed like it was appropriate on that site and, executed a shot, shot broke well, arrow looked good and then it just dropped and you know was was quite low. Um went underneath the elk behind the leg so it didn't actually hit him and uh he trotted off which was depressing. <laughs> if you put if you put that many miles at this point we'd probably gone, you know, 2628 miles that we put on on that trip already. Um and he trotted back off to that wood line and stopped. He wasn't quite sure what had happened. It was a raghorn, probably, you know, four by four is what we, what we think. I didn't really look at the rack that closely other than to make sure he was legal. And as soon as I saw four times, I didn't really look uh, much right. else than that. And, um, we tried calling to him again and he, he actually did. I didn't get footage of it, but he actually did work his way. He made a big loop, um, and got way up above us and then started to come back down but he never quite got back into range. Um, so we saw him a second time, but at that point I, I still couldn't quite shoot him. Um, the only other s- secondary shot opportunities I would have had would have been like 90 yards, and I wasn't going to take that. So that was that day, and that was an exciting day. It was like the first time that for sure we had like called in a bull. So like spirits were high from that perspective, and we still had a couple of days left to hunt. And so and did you
2: guys – Did you guys take camp with you up into this basin or were you guys planning to turn around and come back out the basin to the
1: truck for that night? Back out to the truck. Uh, So, and and basically after the first couple days when we carried camp in, beyond that day, we didn't carry camp at all for the rest of the trip. So it was strictly leave the truck, sleep in the cab, leave the truck, you know, first thing in the morning, start walking up the hill. After about two hours, you'd be at the feeding elevation. And then you just kind of work your way up the drainage from there, location bugle call, and then work your way back down in the afternoon, do like a blind sit in the evening where we're doing a calling sequence and then back down to the truck after dark and then sleep in the cab again. So that's kind of how we're, how we're racking our miles up that way. And then when you read some of these, you know, guys like, uh, who are doing 10 mile or 13 mile loops and stuff like that, it's like, man, like. There's we're not close to that kind of shape in this kind of terrain. Like, I don't know how those people are doing that. And and grant, I think some of those guys ridge run a little bit more. So once they get yeah, up I on that, a lot. once they get up on that elevation, I don't think it's it's not quite as bad. But man, when you're starting at seventy eight hundred feet and you're working your way up to close to eleven, and then coming back down and doing that every day with the amount of deadfall, it oh, it it wears on you. And, and
2: that kind of, that kind of leads to why people do the ridge running is you know you can get up on the ridge. It's typically not as steep all the way if you just follow the ridge and then you can bugle off each side of the ridge. If you get a bull that decides to answer and feel like you can kill, then you decide, okay, well, yeah, we can bail off this side and hunt him and see if we can kill him. And then if you don't, you just turn
1: around and go right back up the ridge. Yeah, it makes sense in theory. It makes a lot of sense. I I think the the unit and the area that we were in, ridge running didn't seem as viable. Uh, from the standpoint that most of it was heavy timber, dark timber. And it always looks like the spine of the ridge is nice and narrow. But once you're actually on it, it's like it goes for hundreds of yards in either direction. and It's all dark timber, right? So we can try and walk toward one side of the drainage and you're bugling and you're wondering how far that bugle actually carries, you know, like what what can hear it. At one point uh, the following day, we had gotten up to close to 11,000 feet and it wasn't above timber line, but it was in an area where all of us, the, the trees, there was like a burn and we could see out over the entire drainage. I was like, Oh, okay. I'd like if we called here, like it could carry out over the entire drainage. Like we could hear like, like this makes sense. Like if we had an area that everything was like this, like that would make a lot of sense and you could cover a lot of ground and you could hear a lot of elk and, and your sound would carry. But a lot of it wasn't like that. It was more dense. Um, and I don't know how effective our location bugling necessarily was all the time. So
2: with that being said, how often were you guys lo- using locating bugles while you were in the dark timber walking? Was it every five minutes, every 20 minutes, every... We
1: tried to do it about every 200 yards. Okay. So that could take between, you know, a couple minutes or it could take a half hour just depending on how much dead there was.
2: Right. Um. And so that was kind of your assumption is that, you know, at least that sound could carry 200 yards in the dark timber.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it, it seemed like there'd be a lot of times where we'd, we'd bust through some stuff and, and, you know, work our way a direction and then be like, all right, ready to bugle again. We look at the GPS and we've gone on like a hundred yards. <laughs> and it's like, well, you know, I guess we could. Yeah. <laughs> we didn't, you know, it's like, it probably doesn't hurt at this point. So that was kind of our plan. And, That, that day after I missed the bull, when we got up to that point and we could see the entire drainage, you know, we just sat there for a little bit and looked out and, and out of the blue, you could just hear a bull chuckling down in the drainage. No bugle, just, just a chuckle. And we could get a pretty, like we could look right down in that drainage and be like, okay, he's about right there. Right. And then not long after that, another bull bugled in answer to him back where we had come from and followed with a chuckle. Like, okay, like what do we do at this point? Do we go after the, that bull or that bull? And both of them were below us in elevation and both of them were in dark timber. Like, okay, well, let's just try and drop down and get in between the two of them. Right. So we did that, did a calling sequence, nothing for probably about a half hour. All right, well, let's go back toward that first bull. And when we were up on that ridge, when we kind of had an idea for where he was sitting, we were looking at the GPS and saying, okay, I think he's he's probably on this bench. Like we tried to pinpoint it as much as we could on the map, knowing that once we got down there, it wasn't going to look the same. Right. And we worked our way that direction. And two more times we got him to make sounds. One time he bugled, one time he did another chuckle and we were able to get closer and closer. And, and we just tried, we said, tried saying basically, you know, if we break his bubble, then we'll do like a challenge bugle. But, up until we know we're within that bubble, we're not going to make any bull sounds and just do cow sounds. You know, especially if he's chuckling, he might be, you know, talking to a harem or whatever. Like let's just act like we're a cow working into him. Like he's calling the he wants to build his harem, we'll be one of those cows and just get right up close to him. And we did that and this probably took an hour or hour and a half to close that distance. And you know, as we got closer and closer, just nothing. Like we just We never heard him again. We could never exactly pinpoint quite where he was at. We never heard any elk busting out. So we don't know if he just was tight lipped at that point. We don't know if we did spook them. The wind was a little bit swirly up in there. So it's definitely possible that some of those air currents could have reached him or one of the the cows he might've been with or, or whatever. But that was kind of, you know, the end of that day. Uh, So, you know, five miles back away from the truck and, several thousand feet early afternoon after we basically said, forget it on this bull. um, We started working our way back down and about an hour and a half later, we were about halfway to the truck and Matt had a a mule deer doe pop out, which he also had a tag for with his muzzleloader. And he shot that doe, uh, dropped it right on the spot. So within about an hour of light left, I was more familiar with uh, quartering in the field than he was. So I basically just did a speed job and quartered it up and was basically explaining like, you know, why I was doing certain cuts where, and the kind of showed in the process and we got it in game bags. And he had, he had loaded up, you know, all four quarters. And then we had just the the bag left with the back straps, the tenderloins, the neck meat, the, you know, flank meat and all that kind of stuff. He's like, you want to carry this bag? I was like, yeah, sure I can. Um, definitely willing to, but if you, you know, want the whole experience, you won't be able to say you packed out the deer. I'll, I'll have that. I'll leave that open to you as an option if you want it. <laughs> and so he's, he thought about it a little bit and he's like, yeah, okay, I'll do it. <laughs> so Just so you can see, he packed out his, his old ear. Um, and and where he shot it, it was kind of an open meadow and we thought, okay, well, like, we'll just, we'll just walk down to the bottom of the drainage and just hike out like straight shot. It won't, won't be that bad. And it was, it was just miserable because it got dark pretty quick <laughs> and we dropped down into that basin lower. And the dark timber was just full of deadfall, like super steep. He took a digger once, and like it's not incredibly safe, like when you're falling with that much weight on your back and you're trying to go over deadfall and stuff like that. His headlamp wasn't super bright, so I was kind of at one point just started leading the way and just kind of testing the waters for where he could walk. We got down to the creek bottom finally after what seemed like an eternity, and there's like head high grass and weeds. The ground is really unstable. And I hit probably five or six times where I just fell into a hole up in my knee and I'm like, all right, we can't go this way back up, start a new route. And I want to say by midnight, we had finally gotten that deer back down to the truck and I was exhausted. So I don't know what he felt Man. like, but he was a trooper for sure. Like granted, you know, like it wasn't a, a ton of weight, like load wise, but it was not an easy pack out either. Luckily it was all downhill 'Cause if it would have been uphill and that type of deadfall it would have been obviously much worse. But it was still like I would call it a challenging solo man pack out for that deer.
2: Yeah, that's that's the tough part, especially when you especially after you kill something or you decide to break from your routine, you're like, Oh yeah, it looks like, you know, we can just go straight down this drainage, it's gonna be the easiest way out But like you said, once you get in the dark timber you don't know what you're getting into. You know, I, I've had the same situation where you bail off. It's like, hey, yeah, it's easy. I'm just going to drop down this drainage, and you drop down. It's the same thing you're talking about.
1: It's like grass over your head, and it's like a muddy <laughs> bog, and you're like, yeah,
2: where did this come
1: from? <laughs> yeah, for sure. That's yeah. It's exactly what it was. Just a big swamp. We, we probably did like eight little creek crossings that were three feet wide, and uh, and we started thinking, like, man, back where that bull was when we were moving in on him, it took us an hour and a half moving as fast as we could with just our day packs to get downhill from where that bull was to where he shot his deer. If we would have shot that bull back there, it would have been a nightmare. Like it would have just been terrible with with that much, <laughs> with how steep it was. It was almost all side hilling and just a ton of deadfall. It, we, it probably would have been like a two day pack out, um, for sure. And I probably wouldn't have had much energy left for the rest of the trip, but I guess yeah, that's, that's why I guess that's part of it, you know?
2: Yeah, that's the thing is, especially you know, elk are big creatures, and so I think there's a lot of the same kind of mentality as yeah, oh yeah, we can drop over here and you know go chase this elk, and then they get it down, and they're like, oh crap, what did we get ourselves into? Because <laughs> it's like now we got to go up
1: over, and then three more miles back to the truck. Yeah, it's this interesting like balance of if if on one side you're thinking. I don't want to, I don't even want to go back there because if we do shoot one, like it's just going to be nearly impossible, like borderline dangerous. But on the other, on the flip side, it's like, if you don't take those chances, you might not be getting yourself into opportunities where you're going to shoot the elk regardless. So. Right. It may not
2: even be back there that you get into the elk. It may be on your way back to the truck, you know, on the same side of the mountain as a truck, but you would never have that opportunity if you're like, yeah, there's no way in heck I'm hiking all the way back there, you know, cause if I kill a bull, it's going to take me four days to get it out.
1: Mm-hmm. When I did miss that ball, it would have been a significantly easier pack out, which made which made that miss a little bit more better. <laughs> uh, it was probably about half the distance that Matt had to carry his dough out, uh, so it would have been and and not that much deadfall, and it wasn't ultra steep, so that would have been an ideal spot to shoot a knock for sure. Um, but if I if I would have done something different in that scenario, I would have I would have taken the time to range the elk, instead of trusting my judgment. Um, and I felt confident in the shot. I felt confident in my range. Like, it wasn't, it wasn't like I just like drew back and just took a wild guess. Um, it was just, I think the fact that it was open terrain, it was on a slope and that animal is much bigger than the animals I'm typically used to looking at. I think that all kind of combined to me, underestimating the range. Um, because if I would have, if I'd have known the exact range, I'm sure I would have drilled them.
2: Would you say he was closer to 60 yards because yeah. you said you shot him for 45?
1: Yeah. Yep. He was a range of the spot where he was standing. It was almost exactly 60. So had I known that in hindsight, like the, the shot went where it hit or where it would have hit was pretty much spot on to if he would have been at 45 yards. Like it was a good, I felt shot. The fo- shot felt good. The execution was good. The arrow went where it was supposed to go for where I aimed. And I shoot right. enough at, fit, or at 60 and 70 yards that, I'm confident my group size there that if I would have, if I would have had the range, right, I'm confident I would have killed that elk. So, you know, if he had to come up slower, if, you know, Matt, ta- Matt and I talked about this too, after the fact, it's like, you know, if, if you, if I would have talked to you beforehand and asked for a range and we would have had that, like, you know, pre-established, would you have been able to give me one? And he's like, yeah, probably. So, that was something that we had not talked about beforehand. And, and to be honest, we weren't expecting a bull to come up in that open side of the valley. So, it wasn't even really right. on our minds. I had ranged a couple of trees close to us, but mostly behind us where we we're expecting an elk, a bull might come through. Um, so, it was really just one of those things where if I would have taken the rangefinder out and, and ranged him, I would have risked not getting a shot opportunity because he might have just started trotting again and he would have been out of sight. But at the same time, if I would have been able to range him, and then draw back and shoot, there's probably a good chance I wouldn't have missed.
2: But were, were you and Matt close enough that you could have, you know, Matt could have been running the rangefinder while you were, you know, focused
1: on that and him just call out the
2: range when you draw? Yeah, I mean he was. Or were you guys?
1: He was twenty five yards. He was probably ten yards away from me, but we were about the same distance from the Alec. We we're on the same horizontal plane. Right. Um, And even if you would have been, you know, a yard or two up, I could have, I could have, if you'd have said 62, I could have, right. We could have figured that out. Um, So, yeah, that was a learning experience. And then I maybe realized why, like, Garmin Zero type sites were were invented because that would have been like, (laughs) that's like the the case that it would have ideally been designed for um, when you don't really have time. You don't think you have time to range.
2: And so – you were shoot. you were shooting the EZV, right? Yeah. And so you went more off
1: of the tick marks than off of the V. Well, so I I kind of did both. Um, I went off. I always like to, even if I size something up with the V, I like to verify that it makes sense in my brain with the tick marks. Um, and so, like, even if I'm like just aiming at a deer that I don't plan on shooting, I'll line it up and then I'll look at the tick marks, and it'll be like, you know. 30 yards or something like that. And after I let back down, I'll pull a range finder out and see how close I was. All right. So with this elk, you know, part of the thing was, I'm not used to looking at elk with the bee and they're a much bigger animal. Um, but when I estimated the range and got the tick marks ready, I did cross-reference the V to, to see if it looked right. Um, and I, I thought it looked pretty good and you know, in hindsight it was off and, and given the fact that it's a much bigger animal. Um, and granted the, the vital measurements or whatever is supposed to be not off by more than a couple inches horizontally. Um, but when you're looking at the side of an animal and trying to visualize, you know, what size that circle should be on the side of the animal, it's a lot right. to think about in about three quarters of a second. Yeah. Um, and so in that, you know, couple seconds that it took me to, to stay at full draw, it was like, all right, get the side picture ready, verify that it'll look good. All right. Execute. And from that, that was, you know, pretty much it. So,
2: and, you know, the measurement difference between, you know, whatever you shot it for, 45 yards and 60 yards, you know, especially with those EZV sights, the farther down into the V you get, you have less margin for error, basically, because of yeah. V, gets a little tight. So, yep. you know, that's not, not saying that was, you know, your fault or sight's fault. That's just one of the the possible shortcomings of it is that aspect of it.
1: Yeah. And I mentioned that in my review video too, back that I did last fall was like, you know, as you get closer to the bottom and those things get more vertical, you know, it's not that the math is right or wrong. It's well, the math, the math is right. And the site is going to be right, but it is harder to interpret what the site is telling you. There's more margin of, margin of error in the interpretation.
2: It's your eyeball interpreting what is the kill zone or the circle distance on that animal? You know, you may be – it's kind of my – this kind of goes off on a my pet peeve about people who, like, you know, may shoot, like, one pin. Hey, it's four inches high at, you know, 20 yards, and it's seven inches low at 50 yards. I got news. uh, Very few people could walk out and say I could just hold my finger on a target at 70 yards or 50 yards and go down, and they would stop me at what they thought was seven. More than likely, it's going to be like 11 or 4. There's going to be a wide range of numbers there. Yeah. So it's just kind of a – it's hard to judge a specific distance at a long distance. So whether it's, you know, 8 inches at 50 yards.
1: Yeah, unless you got some kind of reference, like on a target, that you know the target face is X number of inches.
2: But if it's just a dot on a target and somebody was standing there and said, okay, hey, you need to let me know when I'm 7 inches from that dot, you're going to have a long – there's gonna be a wide spread of people that's gonna guess either three inches or thirteen inches. Yeah, that's seven inches.
1: Yep. And also the faster you shoot, the more those sites have the V kind of splays out more at the top. So there's a little bit easier right. there's more separation between your values at a faster arrow. Which I was shooting about two fifty. So that was kind of another thought I had too is like how much faster of an arrow would I have needed to shoot to not miss there? And I don't even with the lightest arrow I could have had. Um, at best, I would have wounded him. I, I don't think. Right. That, it's not like shooting a lighter arrow would have saved me in that scenario.
2: You were off by far enough yardage that it there was no compensation from that from a speed. Aspect. Yeah, it was.
1: It was almost probably better that I you know shot a little bit too low and just clean missed him. Right. So, learning experience number two. Um, the the following day after Matt shot his doe. We went back up to the back of the drainage again, but we took a different ridge. And on the aerial photos, on the top on the topo maps, it looks very similar to the ridge we had gone up the first day. But this one was just wide open underneath the canopy, so it was easy walking. We're like, man, this is great! Like, we just gotta if we could know like how much deadfall, like if there was a deadfall density map, like I, I would pay a hundred dollars uh, easily for that Onyx to have that layer. Um, I'm sure there's a lot of people that would pay for that. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, man, like this is, this is so much, it, we got up the hill like half the time um, and just a lot more energy. And we got up to this, uh, this spot where there was kind of a saddle in the spine of the Ridge, probably about a quarter mile from where we thought that bull was bedded. And we figured there could be other bulls back there that, you know, are just quiet or whatever. And we're like, all right, let's do a, let's do a sequence. So we, We tucked ourselves into an area where it was mostly dark timber, but there was a little opening about 30 yards across or so. And we tucked ourselves behind enough cover that we were in the shade. We weren't exposed in the sunlight. We had a little bit of visual cover and uh, we didn't have anything out in front of us blocking our shot. So effectively our thought was if an elk comes out into this opening, it's going to be within shooting distance and we're not gonna have to worry about, you know, range estimation or anything like that. And so we started calling and, uh, making again, a lot of racket. Matt was, had a big six foot stick that he was raking up and down some of the trees and just swinging it and smashing branches and stuff. And we're both cow calling and doing, you know, growls and, you know, half bugles and stuff. And, and, uh, we kind of, you know, did that first five minutes or so, and then kept throwing in a couple more cow calls. And then all of a sudden we both jumped because within 50 yards, we could hear an elk right there. Um, like loud, like he wasn't, he wasn't walking in like he was, you know, stomping loud, like making a, a, a ton of racket as he came and closed the, those final few yards. And, uh, we both looked in that direction and could just see one antler, moving behind some deadfall. And I couldn't tell exactly how big it was, but from the fork on the last hind, it was, it looked noticeably bigger than the bull I'd missed. Um, it could have been the bull that we had tried to get on a couple of days earlier. Wasn't, you know, weren't quite sure, but he essentially just stayed out in that line of dark timber and I could kind of see his antler moving and he got behind some stuff and kind of lost sight of him. And I was, I was, you know, ready to go at full draw, kind of, I was in a good position. Like as soon as he was going to expose himself, I was ready to draw back and shoot. And we waited and waited and waited. And he just, he never, we never heard him again. We never saw him again. He just vanished. It's like, we don't know what happened. Like he kind of, he kind of came into our world within 50 yards and never got closer than 40. And after about maybe eight seconds, it was all over. And then we spent the next, you know, 10 or 15 minutes, where Matt started cow calling and moving further away, you know, back down off the backside of the drainage acting like maybe, you know, if that bull thought that the cows were moving, like maybe he'd come back up and try and and follow him or whatever, but he just, he never came in. So I don't know if he, I don't think he saw us. I'm not a hundred percent sure still what happened um, or what we did wrong, or if it was out of our control. But um, our best theory is that in that saddle, for the most part, our wind was, was not terrible Uh, It was kind of blowing not quite in our face but a little bit off of like a side wind Um, but on occasions you get some swirling or you know the the predominant wind of that day would mix with the thermals and it would do some kind of weird little thing that was our only thought was that some kind of wind current or eddy or something had gotten picked up by that bull and at the last second he realized that we were people sitting up there rather than elk he couldn't see well enough to know that there was no elk up there because it was too thick. Where we were sitting. He would have had to come closer to confirm visually that there was no elk. So scent is the only thing that we can think of that would have made sense as to why he wouldn't have closed that remaining, you know, ten fifteen yards.
2: Yeah, to me, I don't. I would think it more had to do with you know because, like you said, you guys were set up on the kind of the backside of the opening, and he was across the opening in the dark timber, right?
1: yeah but I mean it wasn't like it was a wide open meadow I mean it was still right. it was still there's still trees in the opening it's just the trees weren't as dense but like where Matt and was he, you know was sitting up and, and banging the stuff like there could have realistically very well been if if it were elk from where we were making the noise they could have realistically been on the backside of whatever we were sitting on
2: right yeah I, just, I don't know maybe to me I just hearing it it sounds like maybe to me he would have Thought he would have expected to to maybe see elk or hear elk when he was that close, you know, to kind of make him make him want to come that
1: last little bit. It's possible. I mean, I guess anything's possible. We don't really know one hundred percent sure what happened, but um,
2: but I mean, at sixty yards, I'm sure you guys would have heard him if he had a blew out from.
1: Well, that was the other you guys. That was the other thing too. Is was uh, maybe. When we first heard him, maybe he wasn't running in. We assumed that he had just come charging in, and, and we just heard him when he was right there coming up the, the valley. But it's also possible that he was sitting back there at 50, 55 yards and just staring. He could have just been standing there for, for five minutes just looking. And then maybe eventually he might have caught moving a mat raking a stick or maybe, you know, he caught that little whiff of scent or whatever, and then he stomped and, and you know, basically just a little – Little flash of broadside before he got out of there. That that could have happened too. You know, maybe he was there longer than we than we thought he was.
2: Right. You guys may have walked up closer to him when he was bedded, and it, you yeah. know, maybe you guys heard him, you know, jumping up out of his bed like, "Holy cow, he snuck up on me!"
1: But I mean, we had already been calling for five minutes at least, maybe even longer before he mm-hmm. at, we actually heard him. So I don't think we were right on top of him, but he probably wasn't bedded ultra far away either. So I don't, yeah, I don't know a hundred percent like what we could have done differently. If it was a site thing, maybe a pop-up decoy would have been, you know, if we would have stuck that in the opening, who knows, maybe that could have helped.
2: And so was that the, was that the last day then?
1: We had one more day after that. And the final day was significantly windier. You know, we'd usually dealt with like kind of the five to 10 mile an hour gusting to 15. And that last day it was probably 15 steady gusting to 30 and you just couldn't hear uh, it was so loud in that dark timber with all the the branches waving around and stuff. And, you know, we did a lot of what we knew how to do at that point, covered a lot of ground, tried to do some calling sequences in areas that seemed very elky, um, even broke out into some moose spots because uh, we really weren't sure if we went back into the same drainage, if we had hunted it enough days consecutively to get the alcohol boogered up. Um, so we Spent some time in a new drainage and just tried to to cover some more ground and never heard or saw anything that day and that was kind of the end of it.
2: And so, did did you prefer the run and gun style that you guys did this year to kind of the the base camp that you guys have historically done?
1: I did. I mean, it feels like you're more in charge and it feels like you're responsible for creating your own action essentially, uh, versus just kind of being dependent on, you know, kind of passively sitting in an area and hoping that the elk come by. So, right. and the more I learn about kind of elk and how good elk hunters hunt and what the tendencies of elk are versus whitetails, it just seems to make a little bit more sense. Um, you know, you kind of think about like a turkey hunting analogy. If you see a Tom walk out into a corner of a field, but he only does it once a week, like if you just sat in that corner of the field once a week, you might, you might get lucky or he might come out in the other corner of the field three times a week right? Um, and you might just not have enough time. So being able to run and gun, be mobile and just try to find a drainage that has elk in it, you know, cause there's probably a lot of those drainages that we went through and there just wasn't any fresh sign. There probably wasn't even any elk on them. Um, and then when we got back into that, that drainage that we had that action in, it was like, okay, there's clearly elk here. Now how many days can we hunt this and still get away with it? Um, and I, I feel like we gave it a, a pretty good go. And I, I think that, you know, in the future, that'd be like another one of those spots where you could go up there on a day hunt. And if you saw the sign or if you had the encounters, you could, at the coming from the truck the next day, you could pack in the camp and spend a couple of nights up there with like a light, light spike camp, a couple of days of food, you know?
2: Right. That was kind of my, that was kind of my next question that I was kind of leading to is, you know, how much energy and effort do you think that would have saved if you guys, you know, going back up the second day, you would have, you know, grabbed two days worth of food and your shelter and somewhere up along the way, you know, dropped camp basically instead of having to go all the way back down each night to the truck, you know, just run a small spike camp for a couple of days till you thought maybe you burned that spot out.
1: It definitely would have saved us some on the the front and the back half of the day. One of the, one of the trade-offs seems to be how many days do you plan on sitting up there? Cause the fewer days you end up spending in the drainage, the less it makes sense to bring in that spike camp. You know, so it's like if we if we bring in three days of gear and, you know, we busted our our butts to get that extra weight up to that camping spot. And then we decide after one day that, yeah, maybe we do want to hit up a different drainage. Well, then we just waste all that extra effort carrying up that extra food and stuff in the tent. Like you're going for the truck, you don't need to carry tent, you don't need to carry a sleeping bag, sleeping mat. Like all that stuff stays back at the truck. So our our day camp, our day bags were like, 20 pounds or like, you know, probably 25 pounds of the water and food um, versus closer to 40 with that little spike camp. So it's not, it's not totally insignificant, but if we knew for sure that like that second drainage I talked about, if we knew that between drainage one and drainage two, we were going to spend a solid like four days up there figuring it out. I think that's when it would start to make sense. Like, yeah, let's bring up four days of food and, and camp and we'll just try and pick a spot between the drainages where you're not right in the feeding area, right in that Creek bed, but maybe between them, you know, up on like the spine or something like that, where you can find a flat spot. We'd definitely be into doing that next year, probably, or the next time we go.
2: Or if you spend two days in one drainage where there's no elk sign and then, you know, you move to the next drainage and then you do get into elk, you know, maybe grab a day and a half, two days worth of food, get up there, And then you'll kind of figure out from there, it's like, okay, yeah, we're two days in and there's still a lot of elk here. Let's just bail out one afternoon, go get more food, bring it back up to camp, basically. Yep. You know, so run that two days worth of food and then determine from there, hey, is it time to bail out of this basin and go to a different one? Or do we just go back to the truck and get some more food and pack some more food up?
1: Yeah, that makes sense. Part of it is, well, at least what we're trying to still learn is even if we do find elk, If there's nobody else in that particular drainage, which is always, you can kind of get an idea if you're going from the truck every day, if there's going to be anybody else up there. Right. But you also don't know if there was six guys camped up there the week prior. But if you do find elk in a given drainage, like how many opportunities can you blow and still be able to have good action in that drainage? How much does it take to push elk from one drainage to another that's that's we're not not super I think experienced it, with yet yeah i
2: think it varies on the encounter i mean obviously it could take one encounter or it could take you know five close calls you know five elk at five times of elk at 60 to 80 yards maybe one one encounter of an elk at less than 30 maybe who knows right i think yeah. a lot of that plays into the pressure that the elk have had previously and currently have compared to other places as well because you know, they may not blow out of that basin to go to the next basin over where there's five hunters in that basin. They'll take their chances right. with one.
1: Right. And one thing that we tried to do a little bit this year, but we never really had that much success, was, was trying to do some night location. Like when we get to the base of those drainages, and it'd be like night or something, just throw out a bugle. Right. Just see if you get, you know, like he might not be responding during the middle of the day, but maybe he'll respond an hour before light or an hour after dark. And we never really had any anything respond to us doing that. But if you were able to, to figure out something that would work to locate to locate elk whether it was a given time frame or like whatever it was, we only tried usually location bugles too. Like we wouldn't try locating with lip balls. We wouldn't try locating with like bugle and like bugle and truckle. Like if we would have played around with more variables like that, maybe we could have got more responses too. But just being able to know like oh there's There's three elk that just bugled up in this drainage. That would be a lot more confidence building than not hearing anything and just having one rogue encounter. And then you're wondering, was he the only one up here? Is there five elk in this drainage or is there 20, you know?
2: Yeah, especially if if you've hunted a basin, you haven't had any luck in that basin. You know, like you guys did, you guys moved basin to basin. But, you know, maybe at night after you guys come back down, be like, hey, we're going to go drive around for two hours and we're just going to bugle. We're just going to drive a half mile. We're going to bugle in this basin and see what we hear. Cause like you said, it kind of boosts your, your hopes. If you know, there's, Hey, there's three bugles come out of this basin last night.
1: That's the other thing we looked into doing was driving around and bugling from the road. And again, because of the area that we were in, it just, it was one of those things you look at the map and you're like, the closest we can get to this basin from the road is two miles. The closest <laughs> we can get to this basin from the road is, three quarters of a mile. It's like, is our sound even going to carry from the road to the feeding area? Right. Right. So a lot of times that we would park from whatever trailhead we were getting to, it would still be like a mile to a mile and a half hike just to where we got to the point where we felt like the elk would be in their feeding areas. Um, and so it was one of those those spots where you read about guys like, you know, elk nut road bugling at night until they locate elk. It's like, man, this, I don't think it would work at this area. So, um, at least not be nearly as effective but just because you're limited in what spots you can touch with your bugle from the road and in some of those areas where the roads did cut through, those are some of those areas where there are more scenic drives which are just so steep like you wouldn't have been able to make a move on elk even if you did hear something just because right. it was un- unclimbable almost.
2: So what are some of your, your gear that you took that maybe surprised you let you down um was there anything that you had i mean i know you guys did a lot more vehicle camping than spike camping
1: Mm -hmm. um i think so the the one major difference we had was the tent previously we'd always kind of brought our own stuff i did a hammock for a couple years there Uh, but with two guys it made more sense to have a floor of the shelter that was big enough for two guys plus gear so i brought that seek outside red cliff And that had plenty of gear for us or plenty of room for us to, to sleep in. And also just like throw all of our stuff in there in the middle. And I thought that worked out pretty well. It's kind of heavier. Um, granted you're sharing it between two people, but I think it's probably like a four or five pound shelter with all the stakes and stuff. But from an ease of use and like camp comfort setup, I really liked that a lot. Um, it seemed to work pretty well. And after the first, what oh, those first couple of days, I never even used it. But, uh, the quilt that I used, I found out works very well for sleeping in the cab of your truck. <laughs> <laughs> because, because once you throw that seat back, you can grab that quilt from the back seat and just throw it on over your feet and then just drape it over you. You don't have to shimmy into it like you would with a sleeping bag. So, and then the seat is nice and thick and acts like a nice warm insulated pad. <laughs> so that was a lesson learned. Um, trying to think if there's anything else significant, uh, from the archery side of things, not a whole lot of new or exciting things. We both had been much better with calling than we were in years past and had multiple reads with us that we were able to balance between and test stuff out. And I don't think the calling was a downside in our, our setup. I think based on other people that we hear and what some of the actual elk sound like. And I think we're, we're getting to a point where if there's elk there that are callable, I feel more confident that we're going to be able to, to make something happen.
2: Right. Would a, like you mentioned a heads up decoy, something like that, especially day hiking, would that have been a, a beneficial thing to have with
1: the weight trade-off? Hmm. That's a good question. Um, cause you can probably just throw those things in the load shelf. I would imagine for climbing up the hill, do you know how much they weigh? No, I I think it depends. I mean, they're not that heavy, a couple pounds. I I'd, yeah. I'd say it probably would be. I don't know that it would necessarily be worth it for when you're in the dark timber and trying to trying to get real tight up on a bull. But what it would probably be helpful for is when we do those blind calling setups, where we're we could have an elk pop up at sixty yards. He could pop up at forty yards. He could be sitting there at sixty looking for some kind of movement or some kind of sign of an elk. So I definitely wouldn't be opposed to bringing one of those in next time. Oh, Hmm. speaking of the packs too, uh, we all had new packs this year. Matt had one of those XO 3200 K2 frames. He had looked at the K3s also, um, but just, you know, without it having a whole lot of user feedback yet, just decided to go with the tried and true. And he had very good things to say about that pack, even after packing out his deer. I had two mystery ranch packs that I brought. I brought the Pop Up twenty eight and then I also brought the uh Beartooth eighty, which is their twenty nineteen pack that's kind of like a mix between the uh or it's kind of like a in between from their larger Marshall pack, I believe, and the Metcalf. That's an eighty liter pack. And I brought the pop up the first probably three days, thinking that um it was more compact and lighter as a day pack, and if I do get meat down, it can handle that first load out, and then maybe I swap to the heavier frame if needed when I get back to the truck. And with the extra space, I just you know kind of threw all the camp stuff in the load shelf, and we would just drop it off at camp. Well, after you know a couple of days of a day hiking and seeing Matt use his full size Exo frame from hunting from the truck, I was like, you know what, I'm gonna try hunting with that uh, 80. From the truck, so I swapped all my gear over to that pack, the water bladder, everything, and you know, from a weight perspective, I couldn't notice much of a difference. It carried; the, it's probably a two-pound heavier pack, but carrying the 25 pounds or whatnot that we carried every day, it was every bit as comfortable. But the thing that made the difference was with that thicker, beefier hip belt; it didn't pinch as much with the belt that I was wearing on my pants. Right, uh, so it was a much more comfortable ride overall. So I think next time I probably will not even bring that pop-up back. I still like the pop-up better for whitetail hunting, but I think out West, I'm just going to stick to one of those bigger frame packs. I think that made a lot of sense because you, you can cinch it down, uh, you can stuff, and then you can expand it to whatever size you basically want. Like 80 liters is going to carry everything I'd want to carry on a, a week-long hunt if needed.
2: Right. Yeah, to me, even though the f- the frames and the bags in general are heavier, they just seem to carry weight so much better. Um, you know, my K2 that I've got, um, is the same way, you know, I had had the Kuyu at first and it just, it was a lighter bag and pack and frame, but to me, it didn't carry weight the same way that the K2 does.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I definitely, I mean, realistically, if it's between a four pack, four pound pack and a seven pound pack, you know, that's three pounds, that three pounds is going to be more significant, much more impactful. Than making your if if your twenty seven versus thirty pound day pack comes from the frame or the stuff that's in the pack like it's much better served being in the frame and and you know you're not gonna notice that extra three pounds on the top of the twenty seven
2: yeah, and especially that first load you know that most of the time you're a little bit more amped up because you just killed something or one of your buddies just killed something, so you can typically pack out a little more in that first load. And not notices as much in the second or third load, so it's uh, it's better to have the pack that can handle a little bit more weight on that first load, than to say you know pack a lighter pack in, but you, then you take a light first load out to get a you know a more rigid frame or whatever.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. Well, in that buck that I shot in North Dakota, I carried that entire thing out one trip with the pop up 28, and I didn't really have any pressure points. I could carry the weight pretty well. But granted, it was, even though kind of uneven ground, flat terrain, and it wasn't that far. If I would have extrapolated that to some of those hikes that we had up in the mountains, you're talking a big difference in, in terms of the oh, terrain yeah. to be able to walk out on.
2: Yeah, side hilling just, to me, sucks way worse when you have a lot of weight on. Oh, yeah. It just makes everything so much more miserable. Not just the footing, but just, you just start, I don't know, everything about it
1: I hate. Yeah, after that one day, my my left hip, which was on the uphill side when we were coming back, was just kind of like, like goofy. Like you you could just, <laughs> it, you could feel it just wasn't quite right <laughs> from doing all that side hilling. And luckily it wasn't even wet. Like it didn't rain almost the entire trip. A couple of light sprinkles one day, but I'm thinking like, man, you know, cause we've had rain out there in the past. And when you're climbing over that deadfall side hilling and the only place you got to step is on another stick and that stick is wet. Like it's a recipe for, a torn ACL yeah especially deadfalls being you know barkless slick
2: as snot can be yep. footing it's just like nope uh yeah rather
1: not do this mm-hmm. but yeah I mean overall I, I mean we brought out some some meat so that was a success and I think even from my perspective even though I didn't kill I was still satisfied with the outcome of the trip, given that we gave ourselves more opportunities. We put ourselves into scenarios that we were very close on. And, you know, realistically, if I had done my job behind the bow, should have come home with meat. So right. so from the experience of the trip, like there's not really much I can take away and say like, yeah, that, that was a, a bad experience. I think overall it was very positive.
2: So future plans to go back to that same unit, in years to come?
1: I'm sure we'll get back there someday. The unit that we're in is, it's more known as a mule deer unit than it is an elk unit. I think the over-the-counter bull elk success rate is 3%. seems like it's been hovering around the last couple of years. So I would not be opposed to hunting a different unit that has a little bit higher elk density. Right. Um, but, you know, in talking with Matt too, like it would be cool that we've put several years into this particular unit if we're able to come full circle and finally kill an elk there. So that may be a, a drawing factor as well. I do have a couple points built up for Colorado, so I could get into one of those higher-density units. I also have, I think, three, three or four points built up for Wyoming. Um, so there's opportunities to go to some better draw units now, but I think at some point we'll definitely go back to that same same place. Right.
2: Yeah. I mean, you always come to Utah. We got over the counter archery.
1: That's true. Um, just got to figure out the airplane logistics. <laughs> Every time I hear somebody talk about that, that Wasatch hunt on like a podcast or something, they always talk about how it's like, it's like combat hunting. So there's so many people out yeah. there. Yeah. That's the worst part. We didn't have that many elk hunters where we were at in our over the counter elk unit, but there also wasn't that many elk, <laughs> and there was a lot of <laughs> there was a lot of hikers. We probably saw ten hikers for every other hunter we saw. Mostly yeah, staying I mean, on the trails.
2: Here it's more of a, I mean, you can kill an elk, you can kill a cow, spike, raghorn, bull. I mean, if you want to put in to try to find a decent bull, you're going to run into a lot of people um, along the way. That's for sure.
1: All right. Well, I mean, that's that's pretty much the synopsis for my part. I don't know if you have any other closing thoughts.
2: No, not really. Um, you know, biggest thing is water. Remember where your water is. Know where your water is. Don't ever run out of water. Um, so, I mean, if you're going to go in, I've seen some guys coming up with some crazy contraptions this year for trying to harness water in the high country um, so they wouldn't have to pack so much to – Pack so far to get water, basically. So just walk up the hill with a weather balloon tied onto their their water pack. Ah, uh, man, they were like <laughs> s- stringing tarps up, and then they were had like five or six five gallon buckets on the downhill side, and they were all connected to hoses. So the tarp would collect rain or dew, and then it would flow into the first five gallon bucket until it filled it, and then it would flow to the second, third, fourth, fifth. And I'm like, man, they spent a lot of time packing this stuff up the hill. <laughs>
1: That's funny. All right. Well, we can probably call that a wrap then, I think. Sounds good. As always, make sure to follow the Sportsman's Nation on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Leave us a review on iTunes. And if you're looking for additional content from Bobby and myself, subscribe to DIY Sportsman and Boudreaux Bozival on YouTube. Bobby just uploaded his massive video on replaceable blade knives that kind of complements the podcast we did not too long ago. And with that, thanks for listening.